The title of this morning's sermon is, Out of Egypt, I Called My Son. Our uh, key word for worship and training will be behold and star and child. For you adults in the room that don't know what I'm talking about, those are what the, kid, the words the kids learn in Sunday school. And then we ask them to listen out for those words as we go through the sermon today to help them to track with what we're talking about. Uh, and so uh, in our study of the life of Christ, in this last sermon of the year 2023, as we look forward to 2024 and a coming study of a harmony of the life of Christ through a harmony, uh, a study of the life of Christ through a harmony of the Gospels, we're going to finish up the Advent period. When we say Advent, we mean the coming of Jesus to the earth. He clothed himself in human flesh to walk among us so that we could know him, so that he could live a life that we could not. And die a death that we deserve so that we could have a life that we do not deserve and know him forever. <clears throat> and so the Advent, we'll finish that up today. Um, we're going to take a look at uh, the wise men. We're going to see four different things today. We're going to see uh, the Magi from the east uh, visit. We're going to see uh, a flight to Egypt. We're going to see Herod's rage. And we're going to see the return from exile. So those will be the four topics we talk about today. And as we do that, I want to remind you of some of the themes that are presented in the life of Christ as we've been studying so far. And these are themes that are going to be carried out through all four of the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to see these themes and messages over and over and over again. And one of them is, is that Jesus is Lord of all peoples. Jesus is Lord of all peoples. That means that Jesus is not only the Lord of the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. We see in the book of the Revelation that on that last day or in heaven and in eternity, we will be around the throne of God and there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping him together. Jesus is the Lord of all peoples. And not only is he the Lord, the God, the sovereign over those who are believers, but he is also the Lord over the unbelievers as well. The Bible tells us that at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means even the unbelievers, that he will break their knees and they will bow before him and confess that he is Lord. So one of the the themes that we see all through these scriptures is that Jesus is the Lord of all peoples, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Second of all, we'll see a theme where God's purposes cannot be thwarted. If you've been a part of our morning studies um, in Sunday school, we're learning about the fact that God is sovereign. He is God. He is in control. When you call Jesus Lord, you are telling him that he is the boss of you. If you want to put it in children's terms, right? When we were kids, we said, I'm not going to do that. You're not the boss of me. But when we call him Lord, that is exactly what we're admitting. You are the boss of me. And what we find in the message throughout all of the Gospels, throughout all of the Bible, is that Jesus is Lord of all and that his purposes cannot be thwarted. He has a plan in place and that plan is going to take place whether you want it to or not. And nothing that we do can change God's plan for our lives. We also find out that God's providence ensures the fulfillment of his word. 
God always keeps his promises. Let me say that again. We find out that God's providence, the way things fall out in the world around us, ensures the fulfillment of his word. God always keeps his promises. I came across this passage um, in the yearly Bible, uh, reading through the Bible. Uh, I came across this passage the other day in Revelation 19. Let's take a look at that really quick. If if you've got that. It says, then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am your fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Think about what I'm saying. The testimony, the life of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. A prophecy is something that is spoken by God and Jesus is the living fulfillment of the very promises of God. So if you can see that, what we see is Jesus is Lord of all people. We're going to see this over and over again for for a long time now. As we read through the Bible, we're going to see that Jesus is Lord of all people, that his purposes cannot be thwarted, and that God's providence ensures the fulfillment of his word. God always keeps his promise. So today, I want you to look for some of the reminders of these things. We're going to look and see some realities of Old Testament fulfillments. One, we're going to see foreign visitors coming to Jerusalem. Foreign visitors coming to Jerusalem. How many of you remember the story of King Solomon and Queen of Sheba? Where did she come from? She came out of Africa. And what did she bring to Solomon? She brought him gold and she brought him spices. And remember, Jesus is the great, great, great grandson of Solomon. And so what do we see? We see these foreigners coming and bringing gold and spices. How many of y'all heard the term history repeats itself, right? Uh, Those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Well, the reality is even if you know your history, you're going to repeat it. Because all of history is his story. It's God's plan. It's God's providence. And so these things continually, these themes continually repeat themselves through the Bible. Another thing we'll see, if you remember the story, how many of y'all remember the story of the talking donkey? Remember Balaam? He was a prophet. He was not a prophet of God. He was actually a pagan prophet. But he is going to go and he is going to go to curse the people of God. We'll look at that in Numbers 24. Verses 17 through 19. And look at this. Look what it says. I see it. This is Balaam. And he's making a prophecy over the children of Israel. He's trying to make curses come out of his mouth. But instead of curses, what comes out? Blessings. Because who God blesses cannot be cursed. And so look at one of the prophecies that this pagan prophet prophesied. Look what it says. I see him, but not now. I behold him. But not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel, and he shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, his enemies, also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. So, what he's saying this blessing, and what is he saying? He's saying, God is going to crush you people. 
God is going to come and he is going to protect his children and he is going to destroy the enemy. Right? And what has been saying, I see him, he's not here yet, but I see him far off. And so we're seeing a fulfillment of that in Christ. Not only that, we see that this non-Israelite holy man is going to refuse to side with the enemies of God's people. We'll see that with these wise men that come. These, are, these men are not believers in Yahweh. But they're going to come and they're going to refuse to side with the enemy. We'll see that today. Not only that, we'll see exiles to Egypt. How many times in the Bible do people run down to Egypt and then come back to the promised land? We see evil king, an evil king seeking to destroy the promise of God. So we'll see people... Exiles in Egypt returning to the promised land. We'll see an evil king trying to destroy God's promised people. That sounds a lot like Moses and Pharaoh, doesn't it? Now it's going to be Herod and Jesus. But it's the same story over again. And so the story of Moses and Pharaoh, the story of the children of Israel, was literally a living prophecy of what Jesus was going to do when he comes. And not only that, we're also going to learn that there's a spiritual reality to that for you as well. You see, the devil is like Pharaoh or Herod. He's trying to kill the promise of God. And yet God reaches down into a world full of lost people and says what? Let my people go. And he pulls us out of this world. He pulls us out of Egypt to bring you and I to the promised land as well. So not only is there a past prophecy and a fulfillment in Christ, but there's also a future promise involved in that as well. And we see that theme over and over again in the scripture. So let's go to our text today, the book of uh, Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 23. We're going to actually look at the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets, out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. And he came and lived in the city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. This is the reading of the word of God. So, let's take a look first at this Magi's visit. Verse 1 says, uh, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So these Magi were from western Iraq. They were students of the stars. They were experts in astrology and in interpreting dreams. They, the study of the stars led them to believe that a leader was born in Jerusalem. These three wise men actually correlate to the gift. So in the scriptures, it never tells us how many wise men this is, right? We, we sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient Night. But the reality is we don't know how many people it was in this caravan that was coming to find Jesus. But we do know that they brought three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so one of the reasons that people associate three kings is because of the three gifts. But we're not sure of how many they were. So these wise men have come to find him. Look at verse 2. It says, born a king. He, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Notice that it says born king. Not born to be a king, but born the king of Israel. That's very important to see. And second of all, one of the themes that we see throughout the Bible, uh, especially in the New Testament and the incarnation of Christ, when your friends tell you that the Bible nowhere says that Jesus is God, look what these wise men do. We have come to worship him. Remember, the only person uh, that is worthy of our worship is our creator, is God. 
So for you to bow down and worship someone means that they're either God or a false God. Remember the angels constantly telling the people, "Don't." we just read that in the Revelation. What did the angels say? Don't fall down and worship me. We worship God. But as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see people fall at Jesus' feet and worship him. And you know what Jesus does? He receives their worship. Now remember, Jesus is Jewish. He's the one that gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on top of that mountain. If he was not God and someone was falling down at his feet and worshiping him, what would he tell them? Don't do that. You're breaking the first commandment. But you see, Jesus receives our worship. He is worthy of our worship. So, in verse 3, we meet a guy named Herod. Herod the king heard this. He was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod is an Edomite. Now, you might say what that is. Well, if you were a part of our uh, Monday Bible studies, you will know that Edom are the descendants of Esau. And Esau is Jacob's older brother. And Jacob stole the blessing and the birthright from his older brother. And now throughout all of history, there's been this battle going on between Esau and Jacob, the people of Edom and the people of Jacob, the Israelites. And so Herod, this Herod, has a father who is an Edomite. So he descends from the tribe of Esau. So we see that Old Testament battle going on here with Jacob and Esau still uh, fighting one another. So he was placed on the throne by the Roman government. And he was troubled that one from the line of David had come. He's troubled because he is sitting on the throne according to Roman authority. But he knows that there is one seated on the throne that is from God's authority. And it has troubled him. And not only is he troubled, but all of the people of Jerusalem are troubled as well. Why? Well, because when the king's not happy, nobody's happy. Verse 4 tells us that the chief priest and the scribes did what all good Baptists do. And uh, gathered together a search committee, right? Uh, Baptists and, well, even the Presbyterian folks that I know are very good about having committees. We love to have meetings and we love to discuss things and vote on things and have order and rule. But this Herod uh, uh, gathers together a search committee to find out what? Where? Where is the Christ to be born? And I want you to notice that they find a speedy answer. So he gathers together the scribes and the Pharisees and say, hey, where is the Christ to be born? And they didn't throw a dart at the map to figure it out, did they? What did they do? They turned to the Old Testament and they looked at where the prophecy said the Messiah was going to be born from. Look at let's look at these passages in Micah chapter five, verses two through four. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me. To be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brothers will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and he will 
shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. So what is that passage telling us? It's telling us that he's going to be born where? In Bethlehem. And he's going to be born to a woman. She's going to give birth to a child. And this child is going to come and deliver his brothers from the enemy. So these, uh, Herod goes to these scribes and these Pharisees and these said, or scribes and the Pharisees and said, hey, where is the Messiah to be born? Well, they turn to the book of Micah. The, well, they actually roll out the scroll of Micah and say, Bethlehem, that's where he's going to be born. So um, we see in verse 7, it says, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. So he has found out where the Messiah is going to be born. And then he asked these magi, these men from the east, let's don't get these two groups confused now. The group that he asked where the Messiah was going to be born is the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, the ones that know the law. But to the magi, he's asking them, when did this star appear that you saw to know that there was going to be a, a king of the Jews being born? And there's a reason why he's doing that. He wants to know when the star appeared because he knows that when the star appeared is when this king was to be born. And he wants to figure out how old this king is. So Herod shared, in verse 8, Herod shares the birthplace info with the Magi. And look what he says to them. He says, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report back to me. So that I too may come and worship him. So what is he telling him? I want to worship this king too. So when you find out who he is and when you find him, you come back and you get me. Again, remember one of our themes that we've been realizing is that the heathen rages and the kings of this world are a plot against God and his Messiah. And that all through the history of the Bible, God's uh, people have been oppressed by these wicked people, these wicked kings who have sought to stamp out the promise of God. So Herod says, go find him. And when you find him, I want to come and worship him too. In verse 9, it says, after hearing this, after hearing the king, they went their way and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. These, these uh, magi are being led by natural revelation. We've talked about this in the past. What is natural revelation? It's all of the creation that God has given us. And it's, it's, uh, this star is guiding them to where the child will be. Uh, but the magi have went and sought specific revelation when they went to the scribes and the, or to Herod and the scribes and the Pharisees to find out where Jesus was to be born. Because it is the specific revelation of God's word that reveals to him that he was born in Bethlehem. It is the natural revelation of these non-believers that they are following that is bringing them to Jesus. But it is only through specific revelation that one is saved. We have to remember that. The world around you cannot save you. Staring at the sun, the moon, and stars, laying on the beach with your feet in the sand and enjoying and soaking up the rays is not going to bring you a knowledge of who God is. You can lay there and appreciate the creation that God has given you because the, the heavens declare his handiwork, but you're not going to know him except through the specific revelation of God's word. And so these... Uh, 
Foreigners, these Gentiles, these non-believers are following this natural revelation until they come to the specific revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And so they're being guided by this star. In verse 10, it says this, when the, they saw the star, they rejoiced. Right? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When we seek God, we find joy. When we seek God, we find joy. Now, verse 11 says this. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. So, again, where do the wise men come and find Jesus? In the house. Where was Jesus born? In a manger. Right? Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. Where is he in this house? He is in Bethlehem. So after the birth, they stayed there in Bethlehem. What we're going to see in just a few minutes is, by warning, they're going to leave Bethlehem and go live where? In Egypt. And then when they come out of Egypt and come back to the promised land, instead of going to Bethlehem, to the city of David... They're going to go up to Galilee, which is or Nazareth, which is 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Okay? So we, we want to keep that in mind. So they come into the house, and what do they do? They prostrate themselves uh, before him, and they worship him. They bring him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, there's a lot of speculation over what these things are. Um, I, I read several things that say, you know, gold represents a king and that frankincense uh, represents um, pray, uh, prayer. It's a, a spice that they would use in the temple when they offered up prayers to God. And myrrh was a, a spice that they used when they were burying somebody. And so they say that these things symbolize the fact that Jesus is king, that he is our high priest and offers prayers up for us, and that he is also our savior who come and died. And, and so they say that these spices represent those different things. All we really know is that they are valuable gifts. They're very expensive gifts. And they are gifts that are suitable to be presented to a king. And so I would ask you today, what gifts do you bring him? Right? God is not looking at the, uh, the monetary value of the gifts that you bring him. What is he looking at? He's looking at your heart. And what is the greatest gift that you can bring to him? Do you know what the Bible teaches us that? The greatest gift that you can bring to God. But Now, we learned in our Sunday school class this morning, what does God need from me and you? Nothing. He's God. God does not need anything from you. The money that you put in that offering plate doesn't mean anything to God. But what does the Bible teach us? The greatest gift that you can bring to him is a broken spirit. And a contrite heart. Amen. The gift that he seeks from you and I, the most valuable thing that you can present to him is a dying to self and a living for him. Amen. To drop and stop what you're doing and make your journey to him. That's what the Magi did. And so what is required of you and I? Repentance. To turn from self-righteousness, self-will, and self-sufficiency. To stop depending on you and putting your trust in your circumstances 
and to turn away from all of those things and put your trust in the one who holds your circumstances in his hands. And he wants you to come to him, uh, right? What, what is that old hymn where you sing? Uh, nothing to the cross, I uh, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so what does God seek from you and I? What is the greatest gift that you can give him? Your brokenness and your need and your recognition that he's the one that can heal you and supply all of your needs. That's what he seeks from us, our brokenness and our need. And so we see this. We see that they come to the house and they offer these valuable gifts. Now, in verse 12, it says this. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So uh, over and over again, we've seen in the uh, child, uh, child era of Jesus' life that these angels are constantly coming to people and bringing messages to them. Think about all the people we've seen angels bring messages to, right? Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth and Mary, and Joseph. And now we see these foreigners that don't even like worship the same God that, that the Israelites worship. These angels are speaking to them. And these angels bring these messages. They have these dreams and these premonitions. And so, uh, uh, again, there's this tendency for us to want to look for those things today, for us to look for dreams and uh, premonitions and, and signs from heaven. Oh, God, show me a sign, right? Well, that was what Gideon looked for. And when we seek for signs, when we seek for dreams and premonitions, what we're admitting to God is, is that his word is not sufficient. Because what does he tell us? He said, God, in many ways, in diverse manners, in times past, spoke to us through angels and, and dreams and premonitions. But in these last days... He has spoke to us through his son. And so what are you and I commanded to do? The same thing that Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Anna and, and Simeon and all these people we've been introduced to have done. They hear the word of God. They receive the word of God. They believe the word of God. And then they faithfully walk in those truths. You see how that works? So uh, they are warned by divine utterance not to go back to Herod and tell him. And what's so funny is, is that um, all through the Bible, you'll see that uh, the devil is constantly plotting and scheming, trying to do away with God's promises and with God's truth. And no matter what he does, God always wins. And not only that, God takes the evil of these wicked men and turn, turns it around and uses it for the good of his people. So they, these Magi are warned by divine utterance. Uh, and so they were obedient. They heard God's word and they did what he said to do. Don't go back to Herod and tell him uh, where the child is. So uh, that, that takes care of the Magi's visit. Let's go on now to our second uh, point that we want to look at today. The flight to Egypt. Verses 13 to 15. Um, you might not know this, but in actuality, at that time, the time of Jesus' birth and, and early childhood, there were over a million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt alone. Uh, so 
uh, it was not uncommon for Israelites to seek political and, and refuge, political asylum and refuge in Egypt. They would, they would leave and go down there. Um, all through the Old Testament, you'll see even the children of Israel at times would go down into Egypt and seek refuge. So the story of uh, Moses and, or the story of Joseph Right, what's happening? Joseph's going down into Egypt, and there's purposes behind God sending his people down there. But we need to understand that it was not uncommon for Israelites to live there. Um, so they were told in verse 13 to seek safety in Egypt and stay until you are told to return. They're given a forewarning from God that Herod is going to search for the child. To destroy him. In verse 14, look what happens. They're warned, they're told to go to Egypt and stay there until they're given further orders. And what do they do? In verse 14, Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother while it was still night, and they left for Egypt. They didn't wait around, did they? God told them to do something, and they did it. How many times did the lost and rebellious sit in a church congregation and hear the command of God to repent and turn from sin and self? And yet they disobey. They reject God's command. When we hear God's word, we're to receive God's word, we're to believe, believe God's word, and we are to act upon it immediately. And so we see in verse 14 this theme of hearing and obeying, which is what? An expression of faith. If we truly believe him, when we hear his word, we're going to act on it. Our faith is an expression, or or our obedience is an expression of our faith. When we walk in his word, right? When we trust him and walk faithfully with his truth, we find that peace that passes all understanding. When we refuse to trust him, when we refuse to obey, when we refuse to walk in faith, we find chaos, we find turmoil, we find doubt, we find fear, we find anxiety, we find all of those things that this world is offering to you every day. So we are to hear and to believe. So they remained there until Herod died. Okay. Now, this is a, the purpose of them going down into Egypt, we're going to find out, says it is to fulfill a prophecy that is re- we read in Hosea chapter 11. Let's look at that passage together. Hosea chapter 11 says this. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Now, who is Israel in that, in that statement right there? When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Who's he talking about? Jacob. That's exactly right. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. This was while they were still in his mother's womb. God said this about those two boys. I hated Esau. I loved Jacob. When Jacob was still a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, that's talking about another group. Who was that talking about? That's the two million plus of his offspring that had been living for 430 years in slavery in Egypt. So there's two things being referenced there. God's affection is on his children. God's affection is on the children of the promise. Jacob was a child of the promise, and the children of Israel were his promised kids, and they had been living for 430 years in slavery in Egypt, and now what is God doing? He's pulling them out of there and bringing them where? Into the promised land. 
And what we see is, is that this past experience of the nation of Israel is a living prophecy of what God is going to do with his son Jesus. Out of Egypt I have called my son. You see how that works? They were literally a living prophecy of what was going to be Jesus when he comes. He was going to go down into Egypt, and what is God going to do? He's going to call his son out of Egypt and bring him where? Back into the promised land. And not only that, as we've said before, there's a spiritual application to that to you and I. We live in Egypt, and through the preaching of the word of God, the Pharaoh who is Satan and this world, Egypt, is doing everything it can to keep you in slavery... And through the preaching of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is calling his sons out of Egypt to bring them where? To the promised land. So it is a past promise, a fulfilled promise in Christ Jesus, and a future promise to those who will receive him and believe him. It's beautiful to think how God's plan is past, present, and future. It's all one big plan, and we don't get outside of it. So this is a, it's referring to the Exodus... And here in Matthew, Matthew is using it to refer to Jesus. And then we also see the spiritual application. This also is the first reference in the book of Matthew to be Jesus being the son with reference to God. So before this point in the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus is referred to as the son of Mary. But here's the first mention in the book of Matthew that he is the son of Let's look at that again, verse 15. It says, He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him will not perish, right? We sung that today in that hymn that we sung uh, of the begotten. And, And it's a reminder of us that Jesus is the begotten son of God. Uh, To beget someone means to make of like, all right? Uh, You beget uh, boys and girls, and uh, God begets God. You cannot uh, beget a duck or a cow or a sheep because you are a human. And a human cannot make a goose or a duck, and an elephant can't make a banana or a carrot. The only thing that begets begets is what it is. So you are human, so you beget a human. Jesus is the Son of God by nature, You and I are sons of God by adoption. We are adopted into his family as his children. Jesus was born into the family, if you will. All right? And so, uh, uh, again, born, not made. That's what we learn in the Athanasian Creed. All right, so we see this fact that Jesus referred to as son of God. Now, with that said, we've seen this flight to Egypt. The angels have come and warned Joseph and Mary what? Take the child and go down and stay in Egypt until I tell you further. Because Herod is trying to kill the boy. And this is a theme that we see throughout the Bible. Remember Moses in the bulrush? Why was Moses in the bulrush? To hide him from who? Pharaoh the king. What was the king doing? He was trying to kill all of the male Hebrew babies. Why? Because he was inspired... By Satan himself, who is the serpent, 
who was told in the garden that one day the woman was going to have a baby that's going to crush your head. And so the devil's doing whatever he can do to circumvent that promise coming to fruition. And all through the nation of Israel, God's children have been persecuted and beat on and bruised and rejected and despised and killed and maimed and enslaved. And the reality is, is that uh, we see that even in modern, in modern history. We talked about this in Sunday school. The, the German people, uh, uh, Hitler, who was driven by Satan, by the Antichrist himself, was trying to do what? Wipe out the physical promise of God on the earth. Because if you can eliminate the Jews, if you can wipe them off of the planet, then you can prove that they're not God's people. You see, if you can wipe out the entire nation of Israel, if you can wipe out the Jewish people, then you can prove that God doesn't keep his promises. One of the most horrifying that I ever, things that I ever read in my entire life, I was doing a, I was reading the Old Testament in Greek, and I kept coming across this term, holocaustus, and it was in the book of Leviticus, and it was a Greek term that means burnt offering. Where do you think we get the word holocaust from? Adolf Hitler was saying, you want a burnt offering, God? I'll give you one. Here's your kids. I'll burn them. And it's just the epitome of the wickedness and the evil of this world that is trying to destroy God's promised people. And believe me, it's not over. And it's not just on the circumcised people of the Middle East. That persecution and that that, uh, attempt to wipe out God's promise is going to be applied on the children of God in his body. They nailed his body to a cross and his body now, his spiritual body is his church. And they're going to try to do the same thing to his church that they did to his physical body. Satan and this world hates God and his truth hates God and his promises, and he's going to do whatever he can to destroy it. The beauty is, is that God sent his son to save us from that. And by trusting in him, we can live beyond that. We can live in hope in a world that has none to offer. So Herod, in his declining years, his life was marked with much bloodshed. Bethlehem was a small town and would have probably had less than about 20 boys uh, of the description of two years or younger. Now, remember, he saw the star. He asked the Magi, when did it come? They said about two years. And so he's going and destroying all of the babies two years and younger to make sure that he gets the promised one wiped out. But in, in that, and when I, when, as a kid, when I read this story, I, th- I was thinking about, like, millions of babies being killed. But the reality is, is he was only killing the kids in Bethlehem uh, of ages two and under, and there would have probably only been about 20 boys at that time with that population of that age. So, but the reality is he was trying to find Jesus. Herod was so evil that he had three of his own sons killed. And when he was on his deathbed, when he was dying, he ordered that every family in his kingdom should have a family member killed so that everybody could be sad because of his death. That's how wicked this man was. He was a wicked, wicked man. And so this angel has warned them of Herod's rage and told them to go and flee that rage. And so they go and they hide in Egypt. Um, The rage of the, uh, I got a quote here that said, the rage of man is constantly unhealed 
on God's or revealed on God's children of promise. The rage of man is constantly revealed on God's children of promise. Natural man, the world around us, the devil, and all of the evil of this world hates God and his promises. And we have to understand that a natural man doesn't want anything to do with God. Your lost loved ones, your lost family members that are loving and precious people to you, they hate God in their hearts. We have to understand how evil and how wicked this world is, and we have to understand how desperately wicked our hearts were before God reached down and saved us in his amazing grace. We have to understand how evil evil is. And we have to hear that God will forgive us if we will turn from it. And we have to hear that he is a savior who will save. We need to understand the bondage that your loved ones are in. And that it is only God and the message of his gospel and the power of his spirit that can set them free. And we pray for that. And we hope for that. And we trust in him for that. And he does answer those prayers. He does uh, use his gospel to save people every day. But this is a wicked and evil world that we live in, and it wants nothing to do with the promises and the truth of God. The rage of man is constantly revealed on God's children of promise. So in verse 17 and 18, um, we see a passage there, uh, one Old Testament passage that comes from the book of Jeremiah, and we're, we're summing up here. We're getting ready to finish up. But this Jeremiah 31 passage, let's look at that really quick. Jeremiah 31. Then uh, it says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And so this prophecy talks about Rachel weeping because her children are no more. Now, Jeremiah is giving this prophecy in the context of the children of Israel being drug off into Assyria and Babylon in slavery. And what he's saying is Rachel is weeping because her kids are no more. They've been drug off into slavery. Now, remember, Rachel is who? Jacob's wife. Now, Jacob also had another wife, Leah, and the reality is, is that Leah had more kids. She, uh, how many did Rachel have? Remember, Joseph and Benji. That's it. She had two. The rest of them belonged to the handmaids and to Leah. But what is the point he's making here? So in the Bible, Rachel, uh, weeping for her children, uh, Rachel symbolizes the mother of that nation. Uh, Although Leah had more kids, Jacob's affections were towards his beloved. Remember, he loved Rachel. Nothing can alter the exile and nothing can alter the suffering of those kids. But the point being made here is, is that Jacob had an affection for Rachel and Rachel is now weeping because her kids have been drug off into slavery, into bondage. And there's a picture of that in the fact that who is uh, the bride of God who his love and affection is set on? The church. Right? And so the church should be weeping for her children that are in slavery and sin and in bondage. 
What does the Bible tell us? It tells us in the book of Psalms that those that sow in tears will come back in reaping in joy. When we go out and share, so there should be a brokenheartedness about us as his people for those who are yet to come. We should remember that. And so um, we see this return from Egypt. This is our last little text. Uh, Another message from an angel in verse 19 tells them to come home. And the angel appears after the death of Herod and says, go back to the promised land because those who sought your life are dead. So what do they do? Again, they hear and obey. Now, they had lived in Nazareth before going to Bethlehem. Remember, so when she was conceived, they were up in Nazareth. When she found out they were, uh, when the taxing came, where did they go? They came to Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. Where did the wise men come two years later and find the baby Jesus? In Bethlehem. Then they left and went to Egypt. And now that they're coming back from Egypt, instead of going back to Bethlehem, they're going to go to Nazareth. Now, what is that all about? Well, um, Archelaus, Herod's son, was a very vicious man. Matter of fact, he got dethroned by the Roman government in, in 6 AD. So he was such a wicked ruler that the Romans came in and said, you got to get out. We'll put somebody else on the throne. But instead of Bethlehem, the city of David, they went to Nazareth. That's important. And this is going to be our last point we need to see. There is no prophecy in the Old Testament that exactly states that Jesus would be from Nazareth. But as a Nazarene, he would be coming from an obscure and unimportant place. So instead of coming from the city of David, he's coming from Nazareth. Oh, those Nazarene people. You see? And that lends to his growing up in obscurity and the promise that he would be reproached, despised, and rejected. I'll give you, we're going to finish with these two verses. And, and, and I'll let you think about this. So in the book of John, and we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks because we'll get there. John chapter 1 and verse 46. Nathaniel, one of his disciples, come, uh, hears about this Jesus. And he asks Philip. Philip comes to him and says, hey, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what Nathaniel says to Philip. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You mean to tell me our Messiah is a Nazarene? He comes from Nazareth? Why would anybody come from that bumpkin place? You you see? So there's a a point being made here that he was a Nazarite because he, and that that helps lend to the fact that he is rejected by many and not thought of much because he's from up there. Instead of being from the city of David, he's from Nazareth. Not only that, but you'll see in John chapter 7 and verse 52, Do you remember how quick Herod was to go to the scribes and they found out where Jesus was going to be born? You remember that? Well, in John 7.52, Nicodemus questions them about about Jesus. And they're ready to condemn him and and kill him. and, and And Nicodemus says to him, he says, wait a minute. Doesn't our law say that we need to hear a man out? before we accuse him? And the Pharisees described to look at Nicodemus and say, are you from Nazareth too? Now think about that. They were quick to see 
They said this. They said, are you from Galilee? Look at the scriptures and see that no prophet arises from out of Galilee. Well, the problem with that is this. They ask him, they say, you're from Galilee. Are you from Galilee too, Nicodemus? You know that no prophets come out of Galilee. Well, the reality is that Jonah came from Galilee. So these same Pharisees that were quick to help Herod find out that Jesus was going to be born in where? In Bethlehem are now denying the very scriptures that they have that says that a prophet did come out of Galilee, Jonah. So it's not like prophets don't come from there. They just didn't want to hear about it. You see? So they're just like me and you. We use the Bible when we want it to help us and benefit us. I can't tell you the number of people this very week that I've seen the verse uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and to bless you, right? It's a beautiful verse. But, Jesus, uh, but God, in that passage, Jeremiah is speaking to a group of people that are captured in slavery in Babylon. And what they forget is, is the statement is, it's pretty bad right now, but I do have a plan for you. 70 years from now, I'm going to bring you out of there and you're going to have a blessed life. But we'll take that text and, man, that sounds good. He's going to prosper me and keep me. I like that. You see? So they didn't take the whole context of that scripture. And we do the same thing. Right? We, we do the same thing. We find the Bible verses that apply to what we want it to say and what we want it to hear. And we pull them out of context and, and apply them in ways that they shouldn't be applied. That's actually a good verse, and if you want to quote that, that's fine. Like, God does have plans to prosper us, and that is a truth and a reality. Uh, But we also need to remember that Jeremiah was saying that to a people who wasn't going to get prospered until about 70 years after that. So sometimes God's prospering and blessing comes a little later than we expected, and we do need to remember that. Now, with that said, we will wind down today with the advent of Jesus. He is here. And next week when we come back together, we're going to begin to see John the Baptist, who is the one preparing the way for him in the wilderness. And the story's going to pick up now. Like, it just gets more and more exciting as we grow. And in, in, in our knowledge, as Jesus grows in wisdom and in spirit, we're going to see his life blossom out into what God has, has uh, uh, planned for him to do while he's here. And so it's a beautiful story of God's salvation. And... Uh, Because of this story and because of Jesus and because of his birth, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, you and I can go into next year, into 2024, knowing that we have a God that loves us and saves us. And so that's a joy for all of us to know. So thank you for your time today. Let's go ahead and uh, finish up with this last uh, hymn.